This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Anyone paying attention to markets in the economy these days knows that the retail sector is under severe pressure. But my guest today, Matt Fassler of Goldman Sachs Research, says traditional retail isn't dead, it's just changing, as the rise of e-commerce forces the industry to adapt. Matt, thanks for joining us. So happy to be here. So when it comes to retail today, all we hear about is e-commerce, e-commerce, e-commerce. What's the role of the traditional store-based retail outlet today? So today, brick-and-mortar retail represents about 85 cents of every retail dollar transacted. If e-commerce continues to grow at a 15% annual clip for the next five years, that number would still be 70%. That's 70% of retail sales transacted via brick-and-mortar five years from now. The, the business might be getting a bit smaller in aggregate, but it's certainly big enough to matter and will be big enough to matter for a long time. So, Matt, in your report, you identify two different models. One is the distribution center model and the other is the showroom. Talk a little bit about those two models and how they might interact. Sure. So one of the real problems in U.S. retail today is that you have too many companies who are trying to distribute as efficiently as Amazon in real estate that is really priced for showcasing goods. Amazon runs DCs that are, and, and most retailers who run distribution centers do so somewhere out in the desert, maybe 50 miles outside of town. They might be staffed by people. They might be staffed by robots. It's, there's Cheap really, real estate. Exactly. There's really yeah. a function. There's really a focus on cost and efficiency. Conversely, if you want to showcase goods, then most certainly it's worth it having real estate where you have lots of people walking around. They pass by it naturally. It's a very central location. We think that companies that will succeed are going to tilt towards one model or the other. They're going to try to optimize their logistics or optimize their box as a showroom. So if you think about brick-and-mortar retailers like warehouse clubs, Costco and Sam's Club, et cetera. Those were really built first and foremost for logistics. The showroom element of them is really almost happenstance. On the flip side of that, think about a high-end store on Fifth Avenue or Madison Avenue, a boutique that's really focusing on showcasing goods. And, and the distribution element of that business really is secondary. Those are two models that we think can work. We think the models that will struggle are models that try to have big logistics operations in mainstream retail locales. We think that's going to be a very hard model to monetize in the current environment. Why can't retail outlets, retailers simply invest in their own online channels to account for those who want to shop that way and just leave those who like the traditional store, leave brick and mortar alone? First of all, e-commerce, you have to admit, as a consumer, as an investor, as an observer, is compelling. You get to sit at home with an endless aisle, an endless assortment of goods, pay typically as low a price or lower as you'd pay in a store and have that product delivered to your home more or less when you want it to be there. It's hard to match that for some categories in terms of price, value, convenience, et cetera, through brick and mortar. So there's a, an underlying fundamental reason why e-commerce is continuing to gain share. Now, why doesn't a brick and mortar retailer simply say, okay, that's a better way to do business. We'll tilt in that direction. First of all, Interestingly, and somewhat ironically, Amazon has enough of a head start in this marketplace by having raised money early and tolerated losses early when it was smaller, that it's created enough scale that there's, in a sense, a barrier to entry for brick-and-mortar retailers to match what Amazon is able to do logistically, to match the kind of delivery value proposition that they can offer 
at the prices that they charge. Secondly, if you're a brick-and-mortar retailer, there is a tension between the growth that you can generate online and the business that you continue to operate offline. So let's say you transfer five cents out of a dollar of sales to your online effort. What about the person in the store who would have serviced that customer? What about the rent? There's intrinsic deleverage there. So retailers, I think, are simultaneously trying to grow their brick-and-mortar businesses, trying to grow their online businesses while preserving their brick-and-mortar businesses and keep those economics intact. It's a very tough dance, if you will. So what about just fixing the store, making it more up-to-date? Is there something wrong with the store that we experience today, or, or how can that be addressed? So, you know, obviously throughout the history of retail, you've seen evolving generations of store models and companies thrive and then fade. And we're seeing to some degree that cycle evolving in retail today. It's happening to some degree with department stores. It's happening with some of the older retailers kind of down on their luck and moving in a difficult direction. But one thing that we see is sort of an intrinsic business intelligence gap that the typical brick-and-mortar retailer today has relative to an online retailer. Think about the customer's journey to purchase and what the online retailer can see. When you log on to any uh, good e-commerce retailer, they, Jake, know you by name. Um, They probably know your purchase history. They know your triggers. You know, you tend to buy when you see X, Y, or Z by color, by item, by price point. And they, to some degree, customize elements of your journey based on what they've learned. And they continue to learn as you walk through the store. Think about a brick-and-mortar retailer. They build a store. They hope somebody comes. You walk in. They don't know who you are. They don't know what product you're looking at. They don't know what product you're taking off the shelf, what product you're putting back, what product you are leaving at the register. They're not quite sure whether you took a left or a right when you walked into the store. They're not sure why you made the decisions that you made and what they can do to change your mind. Finally, you walk out with a purchase. Depending on how you pay, they might have no idea who you are and whether you ever come back. There's a lot of knowledge that a brick-and-mortar retailer doesn't have than an online retailer does. We think that's a fundamental deficit of brick and mortar as it's been executed so far. So what about investing in that? Does that just just hurt their margins? Would that help the store? Obviously, some retailers are using a lot better data in terms of RFIDs to, to keep track of what's going on in the stores, gathering data on their customers through loyalty programs. Why isn't that the way forward for for the retail store? I think ultimately it is. And one of the things that's excited us as we've worked on this is that the capabilities of the technology that has emerged to help this space have really increased dramatically in a short period of time. And we think that there are opportunities for investment that can pay off. What we see as most exciting is the convergence of the Internet of Things, essentially sensors that track who is doing what and how they're going about it with artificial intelligence that can interpret those observations and make recommendations to retailers. For example, sensors about who's walking into the store based on a wireless signal or based on a sensing of age and gender based on certain uh, physical profiling that the sensors are capable of executing. Sensors tracking your emotional response to a product, to a price. This data can be aggregated, and through AI, those observations can be deployed against solutions leading to retailers to change presentation, change pricing, change colors, change staffing, et cetera. Let's talk a little bit about the divide between high-end retail and luxury and sort of the bargain side of things. Some of the innovations we're seeing in the brick-and-mortar space have a lot to do with enhancing the experiential side of being in a store. 
Will a store that's selling luxury shoes evolve differently than one that's selling uh, bargain footwear, and how might they be different? So one of the real interesting findings for us is that some of the same technology can be deployed both for business intelligence and for actually enhancing the customer's experience. So think about a supermarket, high volume, low margin. A supermarket really can't afford to reach out to you as an individual and say, hey, We'd really like you to buy this particular can of tuna fish as you're walking down aisle number six. And they certainly can't afford to have a store employee reach out to you and say, how's about that tuna, knowing that you're someone who might buy that can of tuna when appropriately prodded. If you're a mass market retailer, you want to optimize your inventory. You want to optimize your pricing. You want to think about very scalable solutions. Think, though, about a beauty retailer or a high-end fashion retailer where the ticket might be $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 where there will typically or optimally be a human interaction anyway with someone working in that store. There, it behooves the associate to know who you are, either specifically who you are or or based on some kind of purchase profile, to know what you've looked at, what you've tried on this visit to the store or on others, and then to tilt their service orientation towards you to try to optimize your path to purchase and increase the probability that you buy. So there, you might see RFID directed towards, for example, getting an item to light up when you're nearby, pick it up. And in a sense, a dressing room, a smart dressing room with an opportunity to interact with employees via a smart mirror as you're in the store pushing buttons and say, hey, this is an item that we'd like a size larger or a size smaller. I personally would like in a grocery store some technology that told me where the things that are hard to find are, but maybe that's coming. So if retailers have to innovate beyond some of the a la carte technology we discussed, what kinds of holistic models are there out there that might redefine the store? So we've been writing about the store of the future. One of the ironies to us is that so-called stores of the future historically were a lot like the stores of the past, just bigger, more expensive, and not necessarily more effective. There are a couple of models that we've seen that try to take some of the technologies we're looking into to the next level. So there's a UK company called Farfetch. Farfetch is, in essence, a platform that tries to provide an online solution for high-end brands and boutiques that are too small to necessarily fund a super high-quality e-commerce interaction and don't necessarily want to sell on a more mass-market-oriented platform. So this is, in a sense, a curated platform. Farfetch is developing technology that they've showcased to the media so far in London and will be rolling out to a store under an acquired brand in New York, most likely this fall, that is loaded with RFID, loaded with sensors, a very interactive experience, very focused on capturing business intelligence, very focused on feeding associates insight about who is in the store and the moves they're making as they walk through. On the opposite side of the spectrum, Amazon has developed a box in Seattle called Amazon Go. So far, open only to Amazon employees. So while I've seen it, it's only been from the outside. And this is a, a frictionless, cashless experience where you walk into the store through your phone. The company knows who you are, and they use sensors to detect what you're taking off the shelves and keeping with you. And essentially, you can just walk right out of the store with your basket, with your bag, with your Instead of goods. scanning it on the, yeah. Exactly. You don't even have to do self-checkout. The store, executed appropriately, knows who you are and what you've walked out with. That is sort of the optimal manifestation of some of the technologies we're talking about. We'll see if and when that opens to the public, how that plays out. So you and your team did a really interesting analysis of earnings calls, financial reports, analyst meetings. 
with some of the biggest names in retail, and you were particularly looking to see whether some of these technologies were top of mind in the space. You didn't find very much. So why do you think that is, and what do you think it says about the susceptibility of brick-and-mortar retail to further gains by e-commerce? Are they just not paying enough attention to the latest technology? So it was scary to see how little is being discussed, uh, at least externally, by the largest retailers about some of the technologies that we explored. So, of course, one thought might be, well, maybe this is a flash in the pan. Maybe this is pie in the sky. Maybe the ROI is not there. But I think it's too early and the technology is evolving too quickly to be dismissive of investment of this sort. The second consideration might be, well, hey, this is all triple top secret for each retailer and everyone is on the cusp of rolling out a terrific solution. I think enough time has elapsed that that's unlikely. That seems unlikely, yeah. So what seems to be transpiring in many instances is a sort of paralysis. And I think one of the challenges, and I'm sympathetic to it, is that if your core brick-and-mortar business is losing revenue every year and flat at brick-and-mortar is kind of the new up five, it's hard to grow brick-and-mortar revenue, retailers seem to be hesitant to put incremental capital into a business if they're not sure that business or that infrastructure will be there three to five years from now. We think the winners are going to make that investment nonetheless because the best way to preserve that brick and mortar, we think, is to invest in that brick and mortar. So related to this, there's obviously a lot of money in retail and there seem to be opportunities for innovation. Uh, But when it comes to venture capital, traditional retailing, seeing almost nothing really and investing in the store of the future, as you said, seems pretty light relative to pure play e-commerce. So pure play e-commerce is getting the new dollars. Why do you think that is? Well, brick and mortar, again, you know, investing in a declining ecosystem is a tough ask. And I think that is to some degree true for enabling technology. We're hearing and seeing some of the legacy incumbents, be it Intel, be it uh, Salesforce with its purchase of demandware, be it Microsoft. They are all acutely aware that the retail industry needs help. So there are some legacy firms that are reaching out and saying, hey, we can provide you with these solutions as part of our more holistic technology offers to you. There are a few emerging businesses, many of them VC-funded, that are trying to help retailers solve these problems. Retail Next is one of the larger ones, and we feature them in our report, and a couple of venture capital firms that have really zoned in on this work. But when you think about the fact that retail, the retail industry writ large, had $80 billion of CapEx expended in 2015, 2016, There's a huge wallet out there to help save the store. We think that there will be more dollars directed at providing the right kinds of solutions to absorb that investment. Yeah, interestingly, a lot of the e-commerce startups are actually building brick-and-mortar stores, if only for brand awareness. You'd think if you had a great brand to begin with, that investing a little bit of technology would make sense. Totally agreed. Yeah. So retail plays a huge role in the economy. The U.S. economy as a whole accounts for more than 10% of private sector employment. How might these two models, the e-commerce model of a a distribution center and the brick-and-mortar model of a showroom, leverage talent differently? And how might that change the nature of retail jobs? I think the biggest change is going to be kind of at the high end or in the sales function where you will actually have a more versatile salesperson in the aisle, someone who is capable of absorbing data, interpreting data, 
And using that data, not just operating on gut, not just operating based on the strength of their personality, though those will be important as well, but there will be a salesperson informed real-time by data and able to use it, interpret it, and be flexible in that way. And that actually, I think, will be an interesting job, a demanding job, and most likely a higher-paying job than the typical retail sales function today. Conversely, I think we will see employment move gradually from the mass market box to the D.C., so what's the best possible outcome for uh, brick and mortar as we watch this evolution in retail unfold? And what's the most likely outcome? Sure. So I think there will be some survivors and within that group. There will be companies that thrive. One of the elements we think about is which ecosystem is most likely to do well. And if I think about the mall-based ecosystem, it's a somewhat more challenging ecosystem if only because there's real interdependence among concepts and businesses. And if you see anchors pull out their boxes. If you see specialty apparel retailers start to shutter their boxes, you'll have too many vacancies and too dysfunctional of a mall for it to really do all that well. So we're likely to see, I think, over the long run, mall capacity actually come down. Standalone brick-and-mortar retailers and so-called strip center brick-and-mortar retailers capture some of that market share. I also think you'll see companies that are a bit lucky based on their assortment, a bit lucky based on their demographic, a bit lucky based on their geography that have a little more time to invest in their businesses because e-commerce is coming at them a little more slowly and, and the erosion in their core is happening more gradually. Those companies, I think, will have more ability, time and, and resources uh, to invest to come out the other side uh, more wired and much more intelligent about what goes on inside their boxes. So for the consumer, just to wrap it up, this basically sounds like mostly good news. Better prices, more choices, a better store, and more e-commerce options. Is there any downside for consumers? So I think if you're a consumer, if your ultimate goal is finding the goods that you want, sure, those will get to you. If there's any downside, it's that the retailer will know how to push your buttons. It's not doing a disservice to you, but commercial success for a retailer is based on you're buying as much as they can possibly sell you. So the smarter a brick-and-mortar More than you need. Perhaps, <laughs> uh, most certainly. So the better this business intelligence gets, in a sense, good thing for the economy the consumer will certainly be more inclined to spend more aggressively when they're out there. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on August 14, 2017. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.